This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to another episode of History Chatter. In the last episode, we were talking about what it means to be an Indian. In this episode, we take the story even farther apart. Let us go to China and to Kashmir. To Muslims, what does it mean to be a nation? What is a national struggle to be like? What happens when a people struggle for many years, decades, to be a nation? And they fail every time. What happens to failed national struggles? We'll talk about such a story, a poignant story today. Let's go straight to the story. I call this an interconnected history of aspirations. This is an episode uh, which took place some uh, 65 or 70 years ago, but its ramifications persist today and will most likely continue to persist for many years to come yet. It brings together the history of several independent nation states, but more importantly, it brings together a set of common aspirations of a people which wanted and still wants to be a sovereign nation. In that sense, it's an aspiration for freedom and for sovereignty of a people which imagines themselves as a nation. But it's more complicated than that. I wrote a version of this last year when the state of Jammu and Kashmir underwent a change in political status. And I was looking to understand a longer-term history of Jammu and Kashmir as a political state. I remembered that as early as 1953, a long report in the respectable American periodical New Yorker, quote, arrived at the inevitable conclusion, which no leader can yet publicly express, that no solution has become the only solution for Kashmir, unquote. Many aspects of the problem around Kashmir were written about probably from one exclusive point of view. They have focused on Kashmir's relation with India and to a lesser extent with Pakistan. But the so-called Kashmir problem has historically involved other nations too. No matter how strongly India seeks to keep it confined within its exclusive jurisdiction, some aspects of the problem will sooner or later slip into a larger international concern, as indeed it has been in, in the past. Against this context, it may be useful to recall a little remembered episode from the recent history of Kashmir, which had some implications on the relations between India, US, Turkey and China. This is a story of how minority Uyghur Muslims from the Xinjiang province of China had fled to Kashmir following the communist revolution in 1949. It is um, a fragmented and incomplete story, 
of an ethnic minority which has lost the motherland and has since dispersed in many directions, almost all of them forced. Interestingly, it has some bearing on the various migration debates around the contemporary world. It also shows how some imagined nations never quite manage to culminate in a sovereign state. Xinjiang is um, the westernmost province of China and borders as many as eight countries, including Russia, Afghanistan, Pakistan and India. It is also the largest administrative region in China. Until recently, most of its people were Uyghur in terms of ethnicity and Muslim in religion. Islam is an important part of their identity and their language is close to Turkish. Culturally, they have always considered themselves closer to Central Asia. And in the past, a section among them used to consider themselves Turks. The area came under Chinese rule as late as the 18th century. During the Chinese Revolution of 1949, the Uyghurs were worried that their territory would be handed over to Russia and had for a brief while set up an independent state called East Turkestan. Isa Yusuf Aleptekin was one of the leaders of that movement. But when the Chinese state once again took control of the region, where resistance against China over the years had grown, Aleptekin and some of his followers had to leave. They fled to Kashmir. That province was no stranger to international guests and to efforts by external regimes to reorganize its landscapes or social and cultural profiles. It had already made a name as a paradise on earth, as the Switzerland of Asia, where tourists arrived from all over the world, at least since the early 20th century. The British had recently redeveloped it as a fancy summer retreat. Even earlier, in the 16th century, the Mughals had merrily recast Kashmir as a replica of their Central Asian homeland. They built nearly a hundred pleasure gardens, of which Shalimar is probably the most famous. So famous, Shalimar Garden, that is, that not too many years ago, 10 rupee currency notes in India bore an image of this Mughal garden in Kashmir. The Mughals also imported Chinar saplings from Persia and planted them all over Kashmir Valley. 300 years later, those Chinar trees with their sprawling branches and majestic height lauded over those gardens and the landscape of the valley. Those gardens and chinars made up the heavenly image of the valley in the tourists' mindscape. The British, who arrived in the 19th century, decided to reorganize those gardens once again. The Mughal gardens were now filled with all conceivable varieties of exotic English flowers. Pansies, candytufts, delphiniums, snapdragons, and so on. Kashmir was now made into an exotic vegetable and fruit orchard too. And cherries, apples, peaches, artichokes, asparagus, lettuce and celery would be grown and exported. They used to count for as much as one-fourth 
of the total export of the princely state of Kashmir. The English planted willows and poplars, which gradually came to compete with the chinars as the signature trees of Kashmir. Those even remotely familiar with the game of cricket know how Kashmiri willow is second only to the British willow when it comes to manufacturing top quality cricket bats. There's more. Exotic fish such as trout were imported from Scotland and America and fed into the streams of Kashmir, where they have since prospered. Christian missionaries too followed, although their labor bore more fruit in terms of schools and hospitals rather than converts. The rule banning foreigners from building houses in Kashmir long predated Article 370 or 35A. A clever British man called Kinnaird came up with an innovative design to bypass the law. He was the first to present the idea of summer residences on houseboats, which technically could not be called houses if strict legal definitions were followed. This is how the famous tourist attraction of Kashmir was born, as a clever tactic to exploit a legal loophole. There is another version about how houseboats came along. It says uh, someone called Pandit Narayan Das first came up with the idea of the houseboat. Either way, they emerged during the 1880s and by 1906, there were nearly a hundred of those in Kashmir. By 1949, the princely states of Kashmir had built up an impressive reputation as a holiday destination for the well-hilled. But the Uyghur followers of Alep the Keen were no rich tourists. Xinjiang had a checkered history. The Ili region to which Alep the Keen belonged had been a bone of contention between the USSR and Kuomintang government in China since the 1930s. Alep Dekin was one of the Uyghur leaders who were close to Kuomintang, along with Masood Sabri and Muhammad Emin Bogra. In 1944, the people of Ili rebelled against the then government of Turkestan and later successfully set up the second government of East Turkestan. In 1947, the Kuomintang supported Nationalist Party government in East Turkestan and it was headed by uh, Masood Sabri as the governor. Bogra was the deputy governor and Aleptekin the general secretary. By 1948, however, the communists got the better of the Kuomintang government in China. In Xinjiang, they removed the government of Sabri and installed the pro-Russia Communist Party leaders in charge. They, in turn, arranged for pro-Russia Burhan Shahidi to take over. By 1949, Burhan Shahidi too had abdicated in favor of the Communist Party. The new Chinese government now became an alien power, looking to expose Uyghurs to oppression by Stalinist Russia. This is how Aleptekin and his followers came to see their predicament in 1949. But, quote, we had no sufficient force or strength by which we could have defended our country against this communist invasion, unquote, wrote Aleptekin. They decided, therefore, to leave 
in the hope that other peace and democracy loving countries would help them to recover their country. There is no clear figure on how many of his fellow Uyghur Muslims accompanied him. He writes that there were hundreds and that they left by the end of September 1949. The communist army, meanwhile, occupied Turkestan. The new government sent wires to the border patrol to arrest the fugitives. Emin Bogra and Aleptekin were handed over to the military police. Aleptekin was tied with ropes, but he somehow managed to escape as they were transported to the mainland and made his way to Ladakh. They crossed, uh, quote, mountains, rivers, impassable ways, unquote, and, quote, faced unbearable hardships, unquote, along the way. Finally, some 789 of them reached Ladakh on December 29, 1949. Incidentally, they were not the earliest Uyghurs to arrive or wish to grow roots in Ladakh or Kashmir. They had been carrying out trade for centuries, as recently as the 1930s and 40s. Quite a few came as traders and eventually decided to settle down, since it was becoming increasingly harder to return home on account of worsening political conditions, something I briefly noted above. Most of these families have since more or less fully integrated with the local population, intermarried and took up residence and employment. They're still around, but in very small numbers. Dispersed in Leh, Kargil and Srinagar, according to a 2016 report by the news magazine Al Jazeera. But Aleptekin and his followers were not so lucky. They were political refugees from China. They had to surrender their arms, ammunition and extra clothing, quote, to the ruthless Chinese soldiers, unquote, at the border. The refugees plodded through the treacherous way in a desperate race against time, lest they ran out of food or clothes. They were forced to abandon their relatives, even wives and children who could not go any further. They were marching along an 18,000 feet high altitude route where the thin air made nostrils ooze blood and many would, naturally enough, die along the way. The route was often alternately under six feet deep snow and glossy ice and a majority of them were walking on foot. Yet others did not have tents, and Aleptekin wrote movingly of mothers trying to nurse children in their enfolded arms, but the biting cold making their bones freeze. About 54 died, along with 470 horses and pack horses, and 49 had their hands or legs frozen and became permanently handicapped. Property worth approximately a million rupees was either lost or had to be abandoned along the way. Even after reaching Ladakh, about 220 of them had to return to their country, probably because they did not have any resource left, and 568 went over to Srinagar. 400 among them since proceeded to Mecca, though details of how they pulled it off are not clear. 
and about 100 were stranded in Srinagar in November 1950. Given that a great many did not carry valid passports, the Indian government kindly allowed them to enter. And arrangements were made for the ailing to be admitted to government hospitals in Leh and Srinagar. A small dispensary was also opened at Sarai Safai Kedal, where they were eventually offered shelter. More than 300 of them were carried from Leh to Srinagar by air, entirely free of charge. Sheikh Abdullah, the Premier of Kashmir, ordered for ration cards to be issued to them and sanctioned a sum of 5,000 rupees for their aid. Later, Aliptikin appealed to the embassy of the USA with a request for money and hopefully some educational training for the young among the refugees. Little detail of what subsequently happened is known. But they were still in Kashmir in 1953 and learning the Kashmiri language. Presumably for their eventual absorption into mainstream Kashmiri society. A cultural delegation from China refused to visit Kashmir that year in response to the sheikh's audacity to shelter dissident exiles. China saw it as an unfriendly gesture and lodged an official protest with India. What happened to the Uyghur refugees in Kashmir after this episode is harder to trace. Aliptakin went to Taiwan in 1954. He was trying to get Taiwan to drop its claims on Xinjiang, which it refused. He later found refuge in Turkey, where some continued to encourage him to persist with his struggle for an independent Xinjiang as possibly a client state of Turkey, while China repeatedly denounced him. Aliptakin later became disillusioned against America too. There are unconfirmed reports that when he died in Istanbul in 1995 at the ripe old age of 94, over a million people attended his funeral. As it so happened, a handful of the Uyghur refugees stayed back in Kashmir and were gradually integrated with the mainstream Kashmiris. Some even returned to their traditional businesses dealing in silk, tobacco, gemstones, textiles and leather. But obviously they identify neither with Kashmiri separatists nor with Uyghur nationalists in their homeland. The younger generation which is now exposed to a better life in the West aspires for better opportunities. The internet has allowed some to get back in touch with their extended families in, in Xinjiang, though they show no particular interest in their political movement. They believe their fate is now tied up with that of Kashmir alone. Sometimes, and here I conclude, material that appears totally out of immediate context offers a more grounded context to intractable current problems. 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson had probably never heard of Kashmir and certainly could not have known of this obscure episode. But one of her little poems best captures the poignancy that surrounds this passage of a forgotten people 
into permanent exile. And I read, To be forgot by thee surpasses memory of other minds. The heart cannot forget unless it contemplate what it declines. I was regarded then, raised from oblivion, a single time to be remembered what, worthy to be forgot, is my renown. Thank you very much for listening in and I promise to be back with as different, as unique and as moving a story from the past in the next episode of History Chatter. Till then, this is your friend Anirban waving your goodbye. Looking forward to the next episode. Meanwhile, subscribe to the podcast now on Epilogue Media website or your favorite podcast streaming platforms such as GeoSavan, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and others. That's Anirban waving you goodbye. Looking forward to the next issue of History Chatter.